We want to acknowledge that Carleton University and the other locations where we make this podcast are on traditional, unceded Algonquin territory. It's a full year course and this came towards the end. I felt like the classroom had been flipped where they were teaching me as much or more than I could possibly have been teaching them in that, in that seminar. everyone. Welcome back to season two of the Department Podcast. I'm Billy Flynn, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Phil Primo. Welcome, 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 everyone. Uh, glad to be back for episode two, season two. Billy, it's really nice to hear your voice again. It's lovely to hear your voice as well, Phil. And uh, I really like your idea of calling this relaunch season, season two. Uh, it's mm. very Netflix. Uh Mm. But you know the inevitable problem, Phil, with calling it season two, don't you? <laughs> um, the inevitable problem of calling it season two. Uh, no, no, actually, I don't. It's a Netflix problem. And usually, you know, season one is good or very good. And then season two is a bit <laughs> meh, you know, so we're, we're in season two. Uh, we're in season two territory here. So it could be yeah. could be dodgy, you know. Right. Yeah. So like uh, they're going to start comparing us to season one. Um, you know, uh, (laughs) wanting to do the recap. So what happened on season one? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I'm not sure exactly what happened on season one. I know a pandemic, uh, ended the season and, uh, started season two. So there's a bit of continuity there. Um, (laughs) but (laughs) that is a good place to, uh, segue into what this episode is going to be about. Yes. uh, This episode, we're going to look at the second of our pre-COVID interviews uh, with Tom Kempel. Mm -hmm. Uh, Last week, we we heard from Sonia Gray. And this week, we have uh, Mm -hmm. our pre-COVID interview with Tom Kempel that we did in February. Uh, the interview was done. Tom was uh, at Carlton giving a talk on his new book on Georg Zimmel, and he was giving a, a talk at the department on the book. And we caught up with Tom afterwards, and he graciously agreed to do uh, an interview about his experiences teaching graphic novels and using illustrated uh, texts uh, to teach and learn in the context of sociology. Yeah, and one of the interesting things that I got out of uh, Tom's talk at Carleton was the importance of uh, the link between storytelling, uh, teaching, and learning. And I think, you know, that's something that uh, on the show uh, we are very attuned to. Um, You know, we want to talk about teaching and learning, Mm -hmm. but also the role of storytelling in doing that. And I think Tom presents us with a really sort of different and novel and engaging way uh, to do teaching and learning through storytelling, doesn't he? Absolutely. Yeah. One one of the kind of central themes is this idea of you know, teaching and thinking through images and text. Uh, And it's certainly going to be a key theme in our next two episodes, uh, two or three episodes with a focus on graphic novels, uh, with a focus on uh, learning and thinking through images and text as well. Yeah. So uh, we split up Tom's interview into two parts. And this first part of the interview deals with uh, The Watchmen, um, now, I, I was a little familiar with The Watchmen, uh, but if you would give us a, sort of like a brief overview, Billy, of, uh, you know, set this part one up, uh, what is The Watchmen? 
Well, uh, The Watchman, Phil, uh, is a very famous graphic novel uh, written and published in the 1980s. And it deals with American society and the rise of superheroes uh, in the context of that society. And it's set in a very uh, apocalyptic uh, kind of time as well. Thanks for that, Billy. Before we carry on with this episode, we'd like to take a moment to talk to you about a situation that requires all of our attention. Yeah, Phil. Uh, just this week, uh, I heard that uh, one of our PhD students uh, and a former TA of mine, uh, Jihan Ordal, uh, was detained in Turkey. Uh, and there's been a lot of activity in relation to people signing petitions, getting the word out and getting support there. Um, so, you know, Phil is going to put in the information in our website below. Uh, but you know, please take the time to sign the petition, contact your local MP with a, a letter. Uh, and, you know, I would like to spread the word to make sure that everybody knows about that and that they have all the information necessary uh, to contact, uh, put pressure on the government and to raise awareness about his situation too. So if you can, please take a moment and write a letter to the Honorable Francois Philippe Champagne, Minister of Foreign Affairs. I'll put his email address below in the notes. It's francoisphilippe.champagne at parl.gc.ca. And there's also a sample of a letter to write to your MP. You can modify that to send a note to Champagne directly. It's important that his office see how important it is that so many of Jihan's friends consider it an important issue. I'd like to remind everyone where and how you can get into contact with us. We have an email that is info at departmentpodcast.ca. You can follow us on Twitter at departmentpod. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, maybe Google Play if it's still around. I'm not sure. Uh, probably your favorite podcast apps. And we'd really like to hear from you. We hope that you take a few minutes of your time and send us some suggestions for segments. What do you want to hear? What do you want us to talk about? Or maybe you have something to say about sociology and anthropology or higher education. Maybe you're a grad student or an undergrad taking your very first university class. Share your thoughts. They are important. As we move towards virtual learning, we also like to hear your thoughts about learning online. And also a big thanks to Carleton University's Department of Sociology and Anthropology for sponsoring this podcast. We are very fortunate to be able to have a department that backs novel media-like podcasts. We're proud to be part of that. So let's get on with it. Tom, how's it going? Very good. You're very welcome to our basement in Ottawa, <laughs> or I should say uh, Gatineau, actually. Yes, it's nice to be here. I've known you for 15 years, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, when I was a TA in your theory class all those years ago, one of the things that always kind of impressed me and excited me about how you thought was uh, your use of diagrams, right? And your kind of uh, use of diagrams to kind of explain, you know, difficult and uh, kind of abstract concepts mm -hmm. to uh, relative newcomers. Uh, and I was wondering, you know, was your experience uh, in Arts One uh, uh, with the Watchmen uh, in some ways similar to that? Because it's quite a visual sort of way of teaching, isn't mm -hmm. it? Yeah. As for all, so Arts One is a program, I should say, uh, for first year pro students at UBC. They get credit in 
English philosophy and history, so not sociology. So I okay. have to do a kind of like a sidestep uh, out of my department when I uh, teach in that first year program. Um, though we're always teach, I'm always thinking and almost talking like a sociologist. Right. And this particular book, um, Watchmen, I did not lecture on. I teach with four other faculty members, including uh, people from music, from political science, mm. from philosophy and from English, and my colleague um, Gavin Paul in English is the one who lectured on The Watchman and right. chose that. What's interesting about his use of that book was um, that he's a specialist in Renaissance theater, and right. he had lectured on Shakespeare's Hamlet the semester before, and you know, <laughs> I'm thinking, do we really need to read a comic book, you know, in a university course? <laughs> I was actually quite skeptical. Uh, but he completely convinced us, and me in particular, right from the beginning, because he gave us a visual picture of it. Um, right. You know, that entering into the world of the graphic novel is like entering into the world of a Shakespeare uh, play, where you have to actually picture in your mind the words, what's happening in the words on the page. Except here, the, wor the pictures are, are actually presented for you. Right. Okay. And um, had you read many comics or graphic novels before? Was this all kind of a fairly new scene? It was to you? very new to me. I really didn't read comics as a kid. Right. Uh, my colleague Gavin, who lectured, he did, and he said that's what got him into Shakespeare. <laughs> so that was a surprise. Whereas for me, I was uh, coming at it from more of the old fuddy-duddy prof uh, perspective. You know. Um, not something I'd really experienced. I'd seen a lot of TV, a lot of uh, cartoons as a kid. Okay. But um, not anything that mixed text and words or images the way that a graphic novel does. And what do you feel are some of the differences between things like graphic novels or, say, something like a cartoon? Um, that's a, I think a, a graphic novel forces you to look at each frame. Um, a cartoon, you can just almost forget what happened um, a split second ago. It also, a cartoon doesn't necessarily even um, focus on the words so much. You know, you, you can mm. forget what Bugs Bunny or somebody said or, you know, and whereas in the graphic novel, you're actually looking at the words and in a great text like uh, a classic uh, of classics of like Watchmen, you have to focus on um, the narration and on the different kinds of uses of text, which besides just this, the thought bubbles or the storyline. Right. And you don't get that in a cartoon. No. In terms of, say, helping students to think about this and how you were, your own thought process, you know, as you were taking part in this class as well, um, you know, could you mention what, what were some of the things that kind of struck you about reading a comic in a university course, uh, you know, what was your experience of that and, and thinking about mm -hmm. it, thinking about images and text, um, thinking through those kind of uh, images and mm -hmm. text in terms of, yeah. Well, the students in, in the course are very different undergrads than the one that I was um, when right. I was uh, going to university. And they're much more immersed in a world of text and images constantly streaming through their phones right. and through uh, their laptops. Right. I grew up in a television, in the television culture, right? Right. Um, yep. And so I realized that, that they were going to be, in fact, quite a far ahead of me 
in visually decoding the images mm. and the connections between images in a gra- in the graphic novel. So in many ways, right. this ha- we it's a full year course, and this came towards the end. I felt like the classroom had been flipped, where they were teaching me as much or more than I could possibly have been teaching them in that in that seminar. Right. Hmm. And in terms of say like. You know, the, the, the Watchmen, right? It uses a variety of different sort of genres, a variety of different sort of types of text mm-hmm. as well. Uh, it's, I, when I was reading it quite recently, um, and I was reading it was kind of traditional comic introduction, and next thing it goes into Rorschach's journal, yeah. right? Or Hollis, one of Hollis's mm-hmm. journal, I believe, right? Uh, and I was wondering, could you kind of talk a bit about, you know, these this whole like text within text, text within images. Uh, it's kind of a very sophisticated um, sort of coordination of that, those kind of it things, is, isn't it? Uh, sophisticated, but not in an off-putting way that, that mm-hmm. alienates you or that thinks it, that, that makes you feel stupid for not following the references. Right. Um, in some ways, I'd felt stupid not following all the references <laughs> right? Uh, because they're pop culture references that might be a little more accessible to uh, younger people. I didn't grow up even reading Superman comics, right? Right. So the kind of um, the parody of the old-fashioned Superman comics was lost on me as well, right? Right. right. Not so much yeah. on the kids who read, uh, you know, who are steeped in Marvel, right? Even the the the, the students in my class, right? Okay. Um, but the text within text was one of the key angles for that for the teaching team when we brought this into um into the curriculum for those two years when i taught in the arts one at ubc um because uh you know we could see references to nietzsche we could find references to william blake the the romantic poet um there's even a character that dies right in the opening pages named Blake, who's clearly oh. referenced to oh, William really? oh, Blake. Oh, no. okay. Right. So we could find, we could sort of trace these things and then get the students thinking about w- how those things were sort of plotted, even kind of sublimity, subliminally in the, in the, in the comic itself. And that opened up a lot of nice conversations uh, in the seminar and some good essays by students afterwards. Yeah. It's, um, it's one of the things that struck me, I think, uh, the the newspaper stand seller that guy and there's mm. all there, there's a guy who's kind of sitting down next to him uh, and he's reading a book right mm-hmm. and excerpts from that book then become visible in the text itself and it's not even something that you necessarily need to pick up on right but it's just this mm-hmm. extra layer of sort of referentiality in that that mm-hmm. kind of if you want it it's there and if not it's just still a great story right mm-hmm. and and just to even notice that already trains you or draws your attention to how uh, a text can have a subtext Mm -hmm. or how an image can have a kind of background image Mm -hmm. at the same time, which we just sort of take for granted and assume are kind of flat, especially when we're just reading the print uh, on a page. But when you see the print with the image and then the print and the images have a few different layers um, and you you can catch that grasp that almost immediately right. almost without thinking but then it becomes fun and interesting to think about it right too. so you were just saying that your students sort of taught you about graphic novels and um 
the sort of textuality and the and the overlay of images. Um, but you're talking about a very sophisticated or at least advanced way of reading graphic novels, uncoupling and uh, sort of going beyond the layering, right? Mm -hmm. um, was this something that came natural to the students or did they actually have to learn how to read graphic novels uh, themselves? Uh, both, actually. I definitely think that they, um, they knew how to connect um, frame to frame. And so we could just open a page um, in a seminar or they could see something projected on the PowerPoint in the lecture by my colleague, and they they would have lots more to say about it than you would necessarily even a passage from Shakespeare or a passage from another text that we were reading. At the same time, um, my colleague was uh, that that we were in, um, requiring the students to bring in some secondary sources. So one of the texts we we read, which I actually recommend because I did give this a good look for seminar, is uh, Scott McCloud, Understanding Comics from 1994, which is only just maybe 10 years after the Watchmen, Watchmen is uh, published. And that already gives you another, uh, some tools on how to focus on, you know, how, how, um, these images can be seen as part of a sequence, but also as separate in themselves and how words might um, uh, be used to understand the image, but also separate from the image. Um, <clears throat> so in terms of um, how it was taught, right, or how you approached it, would it, would it be, was it kind of systematic, like begin, start at the very beginning and kind of work your way through the entire comic or you know, focus on particular sort of aspects of it, the the the, the book within the, the larger comic. Uh, I was just wondering mm -hmm. how you went about um, that. To some degree, you know, we're, uh, the, because of the nature of the course, um, students write on, S on text every other week. So we have to prepare questions a week in advance. And to right. some degree, when I go into the seminar, I'm already thinking of some of the topics they might be writing about. So right. given that this is going to be the first like graphic novel, uh, visually oriented, truly, literally visually oriented text we're reading um, during the year, I might ask them, the, the, the first question I might ask in a seminar is, how do you think um, some of these more literary references or other texts work with the images that you're looking at? So then they've already got some ideas from things we've been reading in, uh, pre uh, previously in the year. The surprise, I think, for the students, but definitely for me, is that we're already thinking visually, even when we're just looking at black and white words on a text and on on a page, and that we're that that the colors and the images are already being invoked for us. The text we read right after the Watchmen is is it appears to be the absolute opposite. McCormick's The Road, and um, and there there's there's no colors. It's a black and white apocalyptic world and that's been completely decimated by we don't know exactly what uh, disasters happen, but we all we all know from our experience that we have to imagine flesh and blood people and there must be traces of color here between the gray and the ash and so on. So that's a nice a nice contrast to take a uh, sort of a minimalist book with very very simple sentences, but absolutely no, almost no imagery in contrast to a very colorful, explosive uh, book, like um, literally explosive, like Watchmen. And I imagine, as is the case kind of often these days, that 
students may have actually watched a TV show, uh, bef- you know, before coming into class and have not read uh, the, the mm-hmm. comic itself. I was just wondering, did you, did you bring up the TV show or was that kind of part of uh, the discussion around the comic in any mm-hmm. way? Or The TV show is new. So the TV show has only been out for a few months as of this date. Okay. But when we're teaching it, we have to talk. My colleagues start early on in his lecture, he says, about the film. Right. The less said about the film, the better. Right. <laughs> he hated it, clearly. But also, he sort of wanted to just keep that in suspension, knowing that a, a huge number of the students would have seen the film with the book or without the book, but more would have seen the film. Right. Um, as far as the, the, I think one of the brilliant things about the Netflix series is that it's it's relatively independent of the comic book. Right. You don't really need it. It's a great enhancement to reading and figuring out that, you know, Silk Spectre's going to come back. Okay. Or that our main character is just, is not at all connected to the, to the comic book itself. Okay. And that's part of the rewriting um, of the history of comic books and the, and the particular history of this comic book. Uh, that's part of what the, the television show is doing. Right. It's one of the, I think it's truly brilliant for that. And um, it's in specifically addressing the, the muted and in some ways uncomfortable racial subtext of the graphic novel from the 1980s. Billy, Tom's interview was engaging, fascinating, and gave us insights into storytelling, learning, and teaching. Uh, Billy, do you know of other people uh, who have approached uh, teaching and learning from this uh, storytelling sort of angle? Um, I do actually, Phil. Um, There are two people I know of at Carlton uh, who are also using comics uh, and graphic novels uh, to teach with. Uh, In particular, I'm thinking of Morgan Rooney. Uh, He's now at the EDC, but he's also at the Department of English. And I know that he teaches a first year seminar uh, in English literature on Mm. The Watchmen. yeah, yeah. Uh, and I also know of Brian Johnson, again, in the English department. And I heard he uses Scott McLeod's Understanding Comics as one of the required texts for his course as well. Hmm, now, that's a familiar name and author to me, Billy. Um, it sounds like you know a thing or two as well about thinking through images and text. Uh, I do a bit, yeah. I've been, uh, as you know, I've been working on a graphic <laughs> novel uh, with yeah. uh, Professor Carrie Mozan, uh, Mariev Carrie Mozan. Uh, thinking through images and text in her own first year seminar this year, Phil, it's very much a, a key theme. Uh, and it is. In two weeks' time, we're going to have uh, an extensive interview with uh, Mariev Carrie Mozan, a professor in anthropology here at Carlton, with Deborah Santos, who's a Brazilian uh, illustrator, and with myself, who adapted uh, the graphic novel. So in the second part of Tom's interview coming up next, uh, we continue on with the theme of thinking through images and text. In this part of the interview, Tom is looking at a version, an illustrated version of Karl Marx's Capital, and walking us through some of the ways that he uses this in a class and in the context of teaching social theory as well. So we're now going to listen to the second part of our interview with Tom Kemble.
So I have uh, Marx's Capital Illustrated by David Smith, uh, illustrated by Phil Evans, updated edition, uh, which I've been reading while you're here. It's not actually my copy. I'm just kind of borrowing it from you. And um, I was wondering, have you used this in any class context? Uh, not class in the political economy yes. sense, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I haven't. I just uh, bought that, uh, had ordered it a couple weeks ago. So right. I just read it last week. Um, but it did resonate with my own th way of reading the classic sociologists, Marx, Zimmel, Weber, um, Durkheim. Yeah. And also the way I teach class my my courses as you know um, yeah. where i'm talking and also drawing on the board at the same time and usually the drawings are are images of you know if we think of mark sitting at a desk not just rabble rousing on the streets um here's what his desk might look like it might have these kinds of um ideas in the form of post-it notes or something so i'll draw a desk on the board and we'll think about it that way and that's what I found really uh, engaging about uh, the illustrated marks is that uh, on the one hand, they add a lot of images and cartoons that could only really come from the last 10, 20 years. But on the other hand, they're also you know, digging through images and archives from Marx's day and saying, this must be what he's thinking about. Right. And, um, so at the... It, it looks like a kind of a, a, a scrapbook, right. this, this illustrated marks, but you're actually getting enough description and a few accessible quotations to understand what the argument is, too. Now, when I hear illustrated marks, I kind of go, okay, wait a minute. This is a person, an author, who was known to be extremely verbose, mm -hmm. uh, write very long sort of prose. Um, could you... Um, Billy, do you mind passing the book to Tom? And could you just kind of explain to us uh, what what we're looking at when we open to like, uh, you know, maybe a random page, page 16 or something. Yeah, let's look at... Uh, you know, yeah, What uh, explain to us what, what we would see. All right, I'll just, since you said 16, I'll look at page 16. Um, <clears throat> and this is from, I always like to find out what chapter I'm in. We're actually in the first chapter. Okay. And... Um, and just to read the first line, after the defeat of the revolution in Germany, Marx tri was tried for sedition, but after a stirring speech to the jury, he was acquitted. And then they have a kind of a cartoon of the jury and the jury looks kind of silly. And Marx, uh, to illustrate the stirring speech he gave to the jury, you have a picture of him uh, in front of a top hat and he's just pulled a rabbit out of it. He says, and now for my next trick. <laughs> So what you get out of that is, uh, first of all, we're not into the actual this text of Capital yet. We're in a kind of a biographical introduction in the in the book, and you get that this guy could have probably spoke pretty well, and he's not just someone sitting in the British Library uh, writing away and reading books forever. He probably was pretty compelling when he really needed to, especially when it was a matter of his own freedom, his own uh, uh, whether he's going to be put in jail or not. Right. Yeah. And there's something like, I mean, Marx, like he uses quite imagistic language, especially in the Communist Manifesto. So do you think there's something about his writing that actually maybe particularly lends itself to sort of uh, visual translation and kind of? I, I do. I've always thought that, but I actually was even more thrilled to see um, uh, our writer, David Smith, and the illustrator, Phil Evans, who's a, um, a comic book uh, uh, writer. They're both of... British left-leaning um, persuasion, right. but that they each 
capture that too, right? You right. know, you know the figure of uh, Mister Moneybags. You know the big fat <laughs> capitalist. Right, and you think, yeah. oh, how rude or insulting of Marx to say that, but he means that as a as a caricature. Right. And so we yeah, get caricatures yeah, of that yeah. throughout the book, right? Do you have a favorite sort of image or passage or page or you know that you'd like to uh, to share with us or tell us about? Actually, I wish I had you had asked me that before because then I would have prepared. Because I often find sometimes when there's so much imagery, I don't remember uh, which ones really stick out to me. I know that one of the ones that stuck out to me was this one, which I think you had seen, and that is one of Gollum. And I noticed that the book was first published in 1982, 1982 right. but then updated in 2014. And so the picture from Lord of the Rings of Gollum to illustrate Marx's concept of commodity fetishism, right. that struck oh, wow. up this, stuck out to me as, as a yeah. perfect il- updated illustration for the modern you know, pop culture infused uh, reader um, to think of how of how that ring becomes a kind of like power of its own and this yeah. absolute fetish right. and even a pop culture meme, you know, my precious and everything. Yeah. <laughs> so I yeah. probably would use that like in a classroom now. Right. Say, <laughs> say this isn't, uh, this isn't necessarily sexual fetish or even quite what we see here in Marx's mind, but it does have a power over and above and beyond us, this thing that right. Marx calls the commodity. Mm. Is there is there a text at the beginning of, of the page? Yeah, he says the word fetishism denotes the belief that particular objects, say religious idols or gold bars, have mystical powers. A fetish is precisely such an object. So the text itself is kind of bland, rather, right? It's sort of like flat. But then you have this image of, you know, the the iconic Gollum figure kind of screaming out at us like some monster. And that is a nice way in which the image and the text are seem to be working across purposes or in opposite directions, but right. they're they're actually mutually reinforcing each other. And he's actually looking through the ring at us as well. He's yeah. got it in his hand. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. He's looking through the ring and he's probably screaming as he always does, my precious. <laughs> Now, um, looking at this book, and I'm kind of going to compare it a little bit to the Watchmen uh, graphic novel, Mm -hmm. uh, this illustrated marks uh, appears to be only in black and white or Mm -hmm. in grayscale Mm -hmm. anyway. Mm -hmm. Does it do something different than the Watchmen that's full of color? For me, it does, particularly the mixture of a photograph. This is a movie still I'm looking at. But on the next page, I've got we've got cartoons. And on other page, we'll have probably have more cartoons. And then we might have collages of cartoons, drawings, and photographs. And and then there'll also be different fonts and different text sizes, which also are very, very compelling to me, particularly when I think of how I teach or how, what I'm trying to highlight literally for students when they're reading uh, a, a big long text, all of the same font. In some ways, this is this is doing some of that work um, for me in a way that I think is useful. To kind of return or to kind of just tie back in with the theme of then and now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you said it's a, a Marx, you know, updated edition, illustrated version. You know, in what sense do you think that this uh, particular type of book um, sort of is it trying to do the same thing as the Watchmen, right? Uh, you know, in terms of the TV show versus the the 1982 comic, 
or is it trying to do something very different by uh, by its updated uh, edition? Good question, because I don't know. I think it's probably, I think it's, I think it captures this uh, the um, the spirit of Marx in that uh, Marx himself was constantly revising and updating his uh, his economic ideas and therefore his at the additions of capital. Right. Um, and so this is trying to do that with, um, you know, the difference between the world in the 1980s, the world of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher and the world of the 2010s after the financial crisis. Right. And it's telling a different kind of story without, uh, about the present and how we could read a text like Marx's Capital from the middle of the 19th century without um, uh, um, obscuring the unique 19th century old-fashioned character of Marx's capital itself. Right. And do you think the fact that it borrows, like in terms of the the images, like you said, there's, you know, there's a, a, a movie still, you know, next to that there's a comic, then there's, you know, sort of print text, mm-hmm. that kind of collage, bricolage mm-hmm. kind of approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that that's somehow speaks to the times uh, in which it is now made, mm-hmm. um, the kind of fragmentation of culture, as Zimmel might put it. Is, is there something about the particular sort of, you know, sort of uh, bricolage genre, right, that mm-hmm. the book seems to embody mm-hmm. that somehow speaks to something Marx was saying, or does it speak to maybe contemporary life or something about it? You know, I think both. And, I, you know, your, your question just evokes a lot of uh, thoughts. The first is that I th- I think there is a, a lot of the there must be a lot of the original um, illustrated marks published in 1982 in this right which happens to be the same decade as the Watchmen, and I think they're kind of coming from the same pop cultural universe of the explosion of images and how they're coming at us through uh, different media long before long as in 15 years before right. the the internet before social media and all that. Right, yeah. But I also think that it speaks to something that's exploding in Marx's own day in the 1850s and 60s, Capital being published, first edition, 1867. Uh, I've always been struck by the opening line of Marx of Capital, where Marx says, um, the societies uh, dominated by the capitalist mode of production appear, and the uh, as a colossal collection of commodities. Oh, wow. Okay. I've retranslated that because Marx says an immense accumulation of commodities, but he actually just means a kind of haphazard collection. Right. right? And he's sitting in the British Museum with this massive collection of objects coming into the museum right. at an alarming yeah. rate yeah. while he's <laughs> writing away uh, at his masterpiece, right? Right. Huh. Uh, I do want to signal mm-hmm. that there are other... Uh, philosophers, sociologists, uh, political economists who have illustrated sure. uh, things. Mm-hmm. There's the illustrated Foucault. There's an illustrated Weber, illustrated Durkheim. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also companion guides. Uh, so a companion, illustrated companion guide to some classic texts. So uh, do you think that this is uh, the way forward to teach classic sociological theory in, uh, say, an intro class or like a first-year seminar? Uh, rather than assigning these kind of brute, long-form texts that we all had to kind of grudge through. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you think these illustrated guides uh, have a pedagogical value? I do, but I have to confess that I wouldn't have said yes to that question even 
a day or two ago, but Billy and I have been speaking over the last few days <laughs> about our different approaches to uh, teaching social theory and sociology departments. Um, and of course, Billy and I are very much on the same page. You know, we've, uh, uh, as he was my former teaching assistant, and he also sees how I work with diagrams, diagrams that look like objects, not just uh, abstract yeah. uh, concept yeah. diagrams. Yeah. Yeah. So, but but things that look like uh, vending machines or tables or bridges or doors mm -hmm. or something. Um, and, and so that I think is a potential. I do want to, the thing I do come back to uh, is the need to be able to read a text, however short, it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, 800 pages of volume one of capital, but parts of that text are really worth focusing on for the language itself and for the words. Um, and so I, I, I do want them to work in combination with one another rather than one substituting for the other complex thing. It's not, it's almost easier said than done because, um, you know, even this illustrated marks, um, there's very few quotations from Capital here. Um, mostly there's summaries, there's sometimes other people talking. Um, and then when you do get a quotation, it's hard. <laughs> you know, you realize the, the challenge of it. Um, I, I appreciate that they highlight, you know, when we're looking at a quotation, because you can go back to it and, and read it through the summaries and through the images around it and on either page. Um, but uh, but it is, it, it's an ongoing process, I would say. In, in terms of, say, thinking about audio uh, and thinking about oral forms of pedagogy uh, and so forth, you know, do you think that there could be a possibility of, because when you're in a lecture, right, um, it's, not just, it's not just you looking at images and you showing them these objects, it's the students listening to you, uh, you're speaking from a lectern, uh, and you're pointing at these images and kind of explaining things as well. Um, so how do you think the aural and the oral uh, sort of fit in with that, in, in, apart from purely explanatory kind of function, you know? Yeah, one of the ways that I begin my uh, social theory class is I, I put up a, um, a picture or a, a quotation from um, Nietzsche, of all people, who we don't read in in uh, sociology with a picture of a, of a conventional um, uh, um, lecture hall, like the one that I'm in. And Nietzsche says, you know, if he's writing as a young man, you know, if a young person, if an if a alien were to come and say, you know, how are students connected to the university? And the answer that Professor Nietzsche would give would be said, he said, would be through the ear. And the alien says, through the ear? Only through the ear. It's through the ear that the students hear the voice and then scribble their notes. <laughs> now, of course, in, a, um, in today's lecture hall, they're connected through the eyes and through the PowerPoint and through whatever visual stimulation or imagery is coming at them. So we have to be an audio-visual um, uh, it has to be an audiovisual performance, um, and that's why I'm I'm asking the same question that I that you asked me about these texts um, and whether we could learn more or differently through the images as well. I have to ask that question about the lecture hall because the students are always looking 
not just at me, but at the, the video clips or the diagrams that I'm drawing on the board or projecting in their perfect form on the PowerPoint. Um, other images I might stills that I might bring in with uh, from pop culture, maybe some classic tables and statistics or something. But it's a it's a it's a lot of information to take in through the visual and the audio. But like my focus on the text as uh, as something not to lose, I don't want to lose the voice either and the audio component. And I was telling you that Billy the other day that you know in German the word for lecture hall is Hörsaal, which means hearing room, which is hearing room, which is just what our word auditorium means. <laughs> yeah. Um, you talked about the audiovisual experience of students, Tom. Um, YouTube, Snapchat, Instagram, you know, these kind of quick, quick and dirty forms of uh, consuming audiovisual content. Um, we're sitting around this table. We're not of that generation. Uh, what was your experience of consuming audiovisual sort of stuff? And how does that inform your practice uh, mm -hmm. in the classroom? Mm -hmm. Well, I was born in the early 60s. Um, and um, I feel like even as the youngest of four kids, I was felt like the first one really to be raised by television as much as by my brothers and sister and my parents. So when my mother... Uh, you know, needed a break, or if I was sick, she'd put me in front of the television, which is common for my nieces and nephews in later generations. But it was not common in my family until me, as far as I could tell. <laughs> so I sat in front of that TV and I watched, you know, Captain Kangaroo, and I watched a local show called The Magic Toy Shop. And I do remember uh, um, this one uh, segment of The Magic Toy Shop where. Um, the play lady, who we didn't see it, we saw it first, but then she disappeared. We would only then see a blank screen. She would tell a story, and then Eddie Flumdum, who was dumb but could draw, he would draw pictures as she told the story. And that meant that I was already starting to think about how to actually create a picture as you're listening to a story. And that's pretty much where I think I got my interest in writing diagrams and drawing pictures as I'm reading, even a complex text from Marx or Weber or Zimmel. Um, images and photographs do have the central place in social science. Uh, we know proto-sociologists uh, you know, would tour the streets of New York, uh, Baltimore, Chicago, taking pictures of poverty. There is something that connects us uh, to our fellow humans through an image. Images speak, they're powerful. Um, do you feel that maybe we can re-render or re-legitimize the image um, in the classroom uh, this way by showing the sort of social conditions through mm -hmm. images, graphic novels, Watchmen touches on some very important topics for our, our current age? Mm -hmm. um, I think the real troublesome um, but necess necessary um, concern there is what you mentioned about early texts, especially um, uh, um, photo exposés, journalistic texts, you know, Jacob Rees, even the early essays of uh, W.E.B. Du Bois at the turn of the century included photographs. And they're often very hor horrifying graphic photographs, which could 
be read in so many different ways. They could evoke that kind of patronizing pity that Du Bois rejects. Uh, they could evoke horror. They could um, they could uh, um, um, generate n- new racist prejudices and so on. And I think I think that's and you know. We, I think we do have to think about how we're using images, especially when, uh, when we can be uh, duped into thinking of a photograph, or in particular, as a kind of transparent connection to an actual real world out there. There's a Susan Sontag. She talks about uh, sort of, you know, sort of how photographs uh, shouldn't be taken as these kind of direct, unmediated kind of paths to the truth, mm-hmm. right? And I wonder if graphic novels and kind of, you know, actually drawing something rather than kind of taking a photograph of, like it, it's able to render something maybe imaginative, mm-hmm. but yet at the same time, maybe quite critical and insightful mm-hmm. into some sort of social reality too, right? Yeah. And the surprise, uh, I think for almost any reader of Watchmen and uh, for for me, especially in particular, is that it feels more real in spite or rather because of its extreme artificiality. And it did feel like I had, uh, like I, I had experienced and was provoked to think about the nuclear age, about the Cold War, about racial relations in a way that, um, uh, that I hadn't just by looking at uh, news stories or news photographs. Reminds me, Billy, uh, I think there's a famous quote, uh, something about the medium. The medium is the message. Is that the uh... medium is the message? The medium is the massage. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I've been teaching. Uh, we were doing the medium is the massage in theory class, second year theory class in Carlton, um, this term, actually. And we were putting it, I was putting it in conversation with uh, Zimmel's sociology of the senses mm-hmm. and also the Susan Sontag essay on photography. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh I think that it's kind of important to, or do you think it's kind of, do you think it's important to kind of sort of teach students or get them to be aware of or get them to teach you an awareness of the different kinds of images that they come across? Mm -hmm. This kind of real sort of, there is a multiplication of different types of images, Mm -hmm. right? And different types of text as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I was just wondering if you could uh, speak to that. Yeah. It's difficult because, as I say, I think the students are teaching me more about images. Um, even when I show a photograph and they're able to decode different the the composition of the photograph, even if it's done uh, something of something that's not posed, right? They can right. decompose the elements of it, the framing of it, um, in a way that that I feel like still a beginner um, mm-hmm. because I think there's. Uh, uh, younger people who have been more exposed to more images than I was at their age are able to um, to look at the different constructed features of it, even though it is uh, you know a a, uh, a direct image, right, of, right, of a reality. But they're able to look at it um, partly because they know that every image that they receive is framed in some way, right? Right, <laughs> Even yeah. if it's by your cell phone, and then by your cell phone, by the many, many people who have posted it or where it was taken and for what reason, right? Right. In those yeah. ways, it's always, as we like to say in sociology, socially constructed. Yeah, and I suppose because from a sort of a user point of view, they're able to manipulate images so easily, right, through their phones, you know, that maybe that 
does lead to an increased awareness of, you know, uh, the treachery of images, right? Yeah. As Marguerite might say. Yeah. yeah, and you know, I feel like a, like a like a complete neophyte with right. that too. You know, when I prepare my, you know, a few uh, images for my PowerPoint slides, even for the talk here at Carlton, uh, um, where I used a photograph of Zimmel in a garden, and then I started cutting up the photograph and mm -hmm. you know I've, i'm now kind of an expert and i brag about that that i can use control alt four right. and <laughs> you know and start manipulating an actual photograph younger people know these different techniques almost uh as quickly as they know how to download uh and and repost a photograph yeah tom it was wonderful to have you on the show Thank you for the chat. Thank you, Phil. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Thank you, Billy. If you've been around higher education, for any amount of time, you've encountered uh, this guy, Marx. And Marx offers us a lot, uh, not only in terms of ways of thinking and theories, but a lot of pages of text. Here, if you've ever seen uh, his book stacked up, you'll know it's quite lengthy. Uh, one thing that strikes me as interesting in Tom Kempel's use of Marx and turning towards Marx is that he does use the original texts as well as the illustrated adaptations in the classroom. Billy, you also kind of approached Marx in this way, didn't you? Uh, yes, I've, I've tried and experimented with different illustrated versions of Marx's Capital, the Communist Manifesto and so on. Uh, I did use an illustrated version of the Communist Manifesto uh, last year in the first year seminar course, as well as my uh, social theory class. And basically what I did was mm. I got a box cutter and I cut out all the pages and I stuck them all together in the form of mm. a scroll and it actually creates a fairly lengthy scroll like maybe 20 foot long um, type of tapestry if you like that follows Marx's communist manifesto from the beginning up until uh, the end as he sees it as well. So it's always very useful from a student's mm. point of view to give them some sort of visual representation of Marx's ideas. And it also allows them to approach mm. a, a very difficult text uh, in, a, in a more user-friendly manner as well. So I, I certainly like using any sort of supplementary visual graphic or illustrated material to help students get back into the original text uh, in, in more detail and in more substance as well. Hmm. I, I think the illustrated marks and the various versions as well are really well done. Uh, but one thing that always strikes me is Marx's original writing, so his textual writings are uh, full of visual or imagery as well, mm -hmm. right? Like uh, they're they're captivating in their own right. So do you think these sorts of texts that are sort of more imaginary, uh, give us more images in our mind's eye, so to speak, are more easily translated into illustrated editions? I, I think so. I mean, Marx does use a lot of you know, imagistic, evocative um, metaphors, writing in, in general. So maybe his work in particular mm -hmm. is well suited to that. Um, 
I was trying to think of something like an illustrated Weber and how that would actually look. Uh, but, you know, uh, right, yeah. I definitely yeah. think Marx's uh, Marx's writing and his style of writing, too, certainly leads itself to a, an easier uh, adaptation into illustrated or visual form, for sure, Phil, you know. And when we use these materials in the classroom, uh, I know personally, um, I learn a lot about how students engage with images as well. Like I learn how uh, students uh, are media savvy mm -hmm. and it kind of shows me their media literacy as well. Do, do you have like uh, this sort of experience in the classroom when using illustrated or graphic novels like this? Yeah, I do. I, you know, students tend to um, kind of latch on to images because they can become these center points through which they can think through a whole range of different issues through the image itself. Uh, so I think mm. that's what uh, we were talking about in the interview with Tom, thinking through images and text. And certainly yeah. these images yeah. help them to access the text and engage with the original text uh, in, in interesting ways. But yeah, I have learned a lot about, you know, how to decode and read visual images uh, as a result of the, the expertise and the know-how and the savvy, as you call it, uh, mm. of, of many of the students uh, in my classes, you know. And I think as we move to virtual platforms and online learning, this idea of media literacy and how we consume images is all the more important, which brings me and us to talk about our live broadcast podcast that will be happening very soon. Uh, that's right, folks. The department is going live and we've decided that the theme for our very first live episode is going to be about online learning. How are you doing with it? Do you enjoy it? How? What is your experience with online learning? We wish that people call in. Uh, tell us your experiences. How's it going so far? What do you like about it? What don't you like about it? Or maybe you're teaching online for the first time, or maybe you're a veteran. Uh, give us a call. Let us know how it's going. Learning online, virtual learning classrooms, everyone's engaging in it right now, but we'd like to know some true stories. How's it going? You'll find links to the live broadcast in the show notes, as well as when we're going to go live for that. Billy, as always, it was a pleasure hearing your voice and putting this episode together with you. Thanks, Phil. And just a quick reminder, everybody, don't forget about Jihan Erdal's urgent case. If you have the opportunity and time, please check out the information below in our notes where you can quickly contact your local MP or the Canadian Minister for Foreign Affairs as well. And don't forget, everyone, you can email us at info at departmentpodcast.ca. You can also follow us on Twitter at departmentpod. And we also have a website, www.departmentpodcast.ca. We'd love to hear from you. Please get in contact with us. We look forward to hearing from you. And hey, thanks for listening.